from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of all the rulers of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Look, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail. And so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty, the Word of the Lord.
for you. Thank you. And now a reading from the Gospel according to St. John. And then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own, king, uh, your own nation and the chief, uh, chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate asked him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, Well, you say that I am king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked him, What is the truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. I remember seeing Stephen John's Burma after 9-11. Stephen was a member here, and he was also associate regional minister at the time. But when I saw him after 9-11, the world obviously was still pretty shaken up. I had just started a few months prior as pastor at a new church, and Stephen came over to make sure that I was getting along all right. He walked through the door of the church, and I stuck out my hand and said, Hey, Stephen, how are you doing? Now, somehow the question seemed to catch him off guard because he stopped and he thought about it for a beat, and he said, Well, I guess pretty good in a world where people fly planes into buildings. I thought about those words the other day as I was getting ready to go out Friday evening. As I told you, I, I, I said to Susan that I would go with her to the tribe animal sanctuary. I was putting on my boots when I heard about the not guilty verdict that came back in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Maybe you heard about it too. It was a little thing that was in the news. Anyway, to recap, a 17-year-old white kid from Illinois brought an illegally obtained AR-15 across state lines to Kenosha, Wisconsin to a charged protest over the shooting of a black man, Jacob Blake, two days earlier by the police. While he was there, Rittenhouse shot and killed two men, and he wounded a third. And after a trial in front of, how shall I put this? Um, a judge who seemed less than enthusiastic about 
the prospect of a guilty verdict, Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted. Now, as I turned on the news and scrolled through Twitter, I was struck by the level of anger and grief on the part of those who fear that this verdict signals a green light to copycat killers. These people who have increasingly been given permission over the past five years take their extensively curated sense of white grievance and wear it as a badge of honor and patriotism. They then use this sense of having suffered some sort of profound indignity as an excuse to make sure that black people remember their place. After the verdict came back, the, 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 the sense of outrage and lamentation was palpable by those who only wanted to see Kyle Rittenhouse answer for what he did. Now, I can't tell you how many people were quick to point out the reality we all know to be true that if the tables had been turned and a black youth with an assault rifle traveled to another state and killed two people and wounded another, that that young man, if he lived through the initial police encounter, would be serving the second day of a life sentence today. But what I found even more chilling was the observation that for many of our black siblings, the most painful part of Friday wasn't the not guilty verdict. Because they have no real illusions about the justice system, about whether or not a, a white man will be held accountable for killing people in a racially charged atmosphere. No, what I found so unsettling was the reaction of glee on the part of so many white people that Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted. Now, outraged by the acquittal, some people are certain that because of his new notoriety and quasi-hero status, that Kyle Rittenhouse is going to have a gold-plated future. In fact, there were two Congress people who said they would have an arm wrestling match over who got to give him an internship in Congress. Now the irony, of course, is that the people who are cheering on this pitiable young man claim that the reason they're so wedded to guns and the idea that they should be able to carry them anywhere, even apparently to Hartsfield International Airport in Atlanta, is because they're afraid of rising crime. Interestingly enough, these same people don't appear to be afraid of crimes committed by white supremacists brandishing assault weapons, only crimes that involve people of color. Now, look, I don't want to make fun of anybody's fear, because fear is fear. It's a very real thing, and we can't just stop being afraid because somebody says, don't be afraid, right? On the other hand, the definition of courage isn't a lack of fear. It's doing the right thing in spite of being afraid. Fred Craddock tells a story about the time when he was at home alone. His wife, Nettie, was traveling. And she left for the weekend. He was sort of consigned to fending for himself. Having been left in charge of cooking his own meals, he went to the store to pick up some supplies. 
And not entirely sure where everything was, he saw a woman with a child in her cart, and he called to her. He said, excuse me, ma'am, could you tell me where I could find the peanut butter? The woman placed her hand on her child's shoulder, and her eyes start darting up and down the aisle to see if she's alone with this stranger. Not seeing anyone else, she turned her back and hurried down toward the other end of the aisle, clutching her purse in one hand and her child in the other. As she reached the end of the row, she looked back over her shoulder and she was gone. Puzzled and extremely self-conscious, Fred still had to look for the peanut butter. After some time, he finally found where it was located and he pulled the jar off the shelf and just then the woman and her child turned down that same aisle and saw him putting the jar in his cart. And she said, oh, you really were looking for the peanut butter. And Fred said, yes, I was. And she said with a shrug, well, you can't be too careful these days. And he turned to her and he said, oh yes, lady, you can, you can. See, it's possible to live in fear and to fail to live lives recognizable to Jesus, the one who embraced his fear, who, when presented with the opportunity to let love show the way, was never shy about walking down the dark alleys where fear lives and appears to call all the shots. I mean, look at our gospel for today. Jesus stands accused before Pilate, who's the governor of Judea. Jesus is a rabble-rouser, a, a, a threat to good political order, which, of course, is a problem in the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire, as I've said before, stretched as thin as it was, dealt with possible challenges to its rule with deadly vi vigilance. And Pontius Pilate had a reputation for being one of the fiercest protectors of Roman dominance and therefore one of the most violent rulers in the empire. Now Jesus has built a reputation that positions him as the potential leader of an insurrection. Even Jesus' closest followers are convinced that this this particular Messiah would follow messianic tradition by leading a violent uprising against the Roman occupation forces, which is why when the authorities came to arrest Peter, according to the writer of our gospel today, John, Peter picked up a sword and just started hacking away. And he's convinced that, that this is the beginning of the revolution. And he wanted to, you know, get his licks in early. And why wouldn't Jesus' followers assume that he'd pick violence as the first club to pull out of his insurgent's golf bag? I mean, that's the way the world works, right? You're afraid that your enemies will upset the nice world you've created for yourself, and so you view them as a threat. Pilate certainly assumes that Jesus is a threat. He starts the whole trial by asking, are you the king of the Jews? In other words, 
Are you going to be a problem for me? Do you seek to establish a kingdom that will be a threat to the one that I represent? Now, Jesus responds to this interrogation by saying, look, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, then my followers would be fighting to keep me from being in here with you. (coughs) Jesus, who is about to be killed by the state out of its fear, is right. Only we, we, we tend to think of this phrase, you know, my kingdom is not from this world, reference somehow to some celestial dominion far removed from the world in which we live, out there somewhere. And immediately people's eyes sort of glaze over, thinking about pearly gates and streets of gold. My kingdom is not from this world, Jesus says. So, (laughs) question is, to us, really, where is his kingdom from? Now, we've tended to think of Jesus' response as a reference to a different place, as an answer to the question, where? Out there, where the roll is called up yonder in the sweet by and by, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. But I remain more and more convinced that Jesus' mention of a kingdom not from this world isn't a spatial reference, a question of where. I think the appropriate question to pose to Jesus' claim of a kingdom not from this world isn't where, but what, or more specifically, what kind. See, the kingdom to which Jesus refers is from a different world, but, but not in terms of spatial location, in terms of quality and, and, and character. Pontius Pilate deals with Jesus from fear, as a threat. And how do we deal with threats in this world? We isolate them. We dehumanize them. We stick them in ghettos, put them in prisons, sequester them in internment camps. But for God's sake, keep them away from us. Right? And if none of those things work, then we invest in ever more ingenious ways of redlining them into financial obscurity. Same as it ever was. But see, Jesus doesn't deal with others first as threats to be feared. He embraces them as siblings created and loved by God and therefore deserving of our profoundest attempts at love and welcome. So when Jesus says that his kingdom is not from this world, he ain't kidding. The kind of realm over which Jesus reigns appears unintelligible to a world that believes threats are to be eliminated, always, by violence if necessary. Any reign that takes as its organizing principle the need to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you is bound to appear alien to this world. See, following Jesus is is, risky. Indeed, his kingdom is not from this world, a world in which fear of the other drives us to deal with threats in deadly earnestness. And as a result, the domain that Jesus' followers 
serve isn't from this world either. If you want to follow Jesus, risk is pretty much what you signed up for. Syrian refugees, Muslims, transgender people, black people, gay people, houseless and hungry people, all the children of the world. Now, if you're afraid, that's fine. Fear is something that just is. But if you're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus, then we're going to have to learn how to be faithful in the face of our fears. We're going to have to learn how to love those whom we don't understand, those whom we fear, not, not, not as ex, uh, abstractions, not as categories, not as threats, but as individuals, as human faces, as children of God. See, fear and violence cannot define our relationship to those who are different from us. In the same way that fear and violence cannot define Jesus' kingdom, which is not from this world. But, 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 but if fear and violence don't define the realm of Jesus' reign, then what does? What might such a kingdom look like? I mean, not just in ancient times, but right now. Right here in the middle of a world that feels like it's busy cannibalizing itself, living on the blood and the tears of children. I mean, what might a kingdom not from this world actually look like for us? years ago, you may remember that Paris was the site of a terrorist attack. This particular attack claimed the lives of 89 people at a music concert. Among those killed in the gunfire was a young mother and wife. Her name was Helene Mouyal Lery. Still grieving, her husband Antoine later wrote a letter on Facebook to the attackers. A letter that I think helps us see the contours of the world Jesus is talking about. The world Jesus envisions as he talks to his eventual executioner about his kingdom, the one that is not from this world. Here's an excerpt from the letter that Antoine Larry wrote to those who killed his wife, the mother of his son. He said, I will not give you the gift of hating you. You've obviously sought it, but responding to hatred with anger would be to give in to the same ignorance that has made you what you are. You want me to be afraid, to cast a mistrustful eye on my fellow citizens, to sacrifice my freedom for security lost. Same player, same game. And then he says, we are only two, my son and I, but we are more powerful than all the world's armies. In any case, I have no more time to waste on you. I need to get back to Melville, who's waking up from his na afternoon nap. He's just 17 months old, He'll eat his snack like every day, and then we're going to play like we do every day. 
And every day of his life, this little boy will insult you with his happiness and his freedom because you don't have his hatred either. So how are you doing this Sunday? In a world where planes fly into buildings, in a world where young white men still shoot people with impunity, and schools and soccer games and music concerts are sometimes literal battlefields, in a world where violence isn't the latest resort, or the last resort, but is rather the preferred response to fear. How are any of us doing? I don't know, but you can't be too careful these days. But you see, I can hear Antoine Lerie. I can hear Jesus. Oh yes, my friend. You can. You can. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.